Welcome to See You on the Other Side, where the world of the mysterious collides with the world of entertainment. A discussion of art, music, movies, spirituality, the weird, and self-discovery. And now, your hosts, musicians and entertainers who have their own weakness for the weird, Mike and Wendy from the band Sunspot. Hey, hey, hey. How you doing, Mike? I am I am feeling great tonight, Wendy. I'll tell you that. I'm I'm excited. I've got a uh next time next time that you guys will hear from me, I will just have uh, completed my first half marathon. Oh, that's right. You've been getting ready for this all year. That's yeah, that's, so that was my uh fitness goal for the beginning of two thousand and fifteen was to, I remember talking to you about that and you were um doing the vegan diet and yep. how's everything going? Everything's going excellently. So I'm on par. I'm on par to have uh, hopefully my fastest half marathon yet. So great. Have you learned anything interesting from your training for this particular one? Or yes, I have. Uh, the less I drink, the better I feel. Mm. <laughs> that was weird. How shocking that is. Yeah, I, I was. I was like, that's not. Weird. That's not fair. <laughs> well, it's a good lesson for us all, I suppose. Right. Yeah, that's right. So I'm going to reward myself with a couple of craft beers next weekend. Uh, after I finish the race. Oh, that sounds like a, a nice reward. Yes. Although it, you better be care- You better have someone to cart you home. Yes, I will. My my, <laughs> your tolerance is going to be about right, zero. Be, be pretty weak. So uh, yes. I'll make sure to keep it safe. But uh, no, I'm really looking forward to that. So well, that's wonderful. And that's uh, when is that? The Saturday or Sunday? That's Sunday. It's the hypo. It's called the hypothermic half marathon, and it's in Minneapolis, and then in some locations in Canada. And the weather forecast is supposed to be? Um, well, it should be a little warmer over the weekend. If it was anything like it was this past weekend, then we'll be running in negative temperatures. And that's not something I'm looking forward to. Oh, <laughs> wow. That sounds difficult. Yeah. Challenging. Challenging, if you it, will. It's hard, to keep, it's hard to keep the breath going um, when Dr. Freeze has just, you know, uh, has, has his icy grip on side of your lungs. Indeed. But Mike... You're a Wisconsin native. You've lived, you know, you've grown up here, lived here your whole life. So I'm confident that you have what it takes to to withstand the cold and to be victorious. Thank get you. Get that finish line. Like just I'm, beat I'm, everyone, win I, the race. I'm glad someone has the confidence for me. I appreciate that. <laughs> so that'll no, be you'll a, do great. I'm sure. But good you. luck to you. And we'll look forward to hearing about it next week when you get back. And yeah, if there's, no po- it. if there's no podcast next week, you people will know why. <laughs> there will be a podcast. Yes, there will be. Um, so no, I've been working on that. Uh, and this weekend I had a real good time. We were in the studio yesterday. Yes, we were recording studio for sunspot, new songs and, and some of the songs. Well, in fact, all of the songs are ones that, um, we wrote that were inspired by this podcast, by topics from this podcast. And that's what we'll be doing for a lot of the releases, uh, coming up now. So if, if you guys have any particular songs that you like, in the audience, if you hear something and you think it's great, and you're like, man, I'd like to hear a really revved up version of that. Um, let us know. We'll definitely keep that in consideration because we're looking at, uh, we'd like the most you know, popular songs from the podcast to be the ones that we really lay down and nail in the studio. And it'll be fun to, to release those and share those with everybody. It yeah. is. And oh, the other thing I was excited about over the weekend was getting another five-star review in iTunes. Yes, I saw that. I was so happy. And... Um, the the kind kind reviewer who gave us five stars didn't leave a comment, so we don't have a name, so we can't we can't give him a shout out, unfortunately. But to the anonymous listener 
who gave us five whole stars. Thank you. And you're helping us reach our goal for February, which is what, Mike? Four five-star reviews. Yes, four, well, four new reviews. Right, right, right that's right. So and, four, so, and, and so the thing is, though, anybody leaving a five-star review with a, a comment, we turn that comment into a song. So that's right. it's your chance to be immortalized in music <laughs> by Sunspot. We will do that on the See You on the Other Side podcast. It's like a singing telegram of a shout-out. So Exactly. If you care to help us reach our goal, um, we still have a couple of weeks left in February, so... We're going for three more. We're a little bit behind schedule, but you know, sometimes the tortoise right at the end starts to sprint. That's takes right. Takes over and wins. That's right. That's the rally. That's yes. that, that's the rally that comes in the past the last couple <laughs> weeks of the month. So that's where we're going. So that's right. You're listening to it. Just come on there. Go on iTunes. Leave a little comment, and we'll turn it into a song. Oh, um, thank you. And we appreciate them. All right. Well, before we we talk any more about the past. Let's talk about the future, which is what you're about to hear, my friends. And that is Mike doing another spectacular interview. So tell us a little bit about this week's interviewee, Mike, if you would. Well, this was something, uh, when I heard about this book, I knew it would be perfect for our podcast. And I knew something that it would be a book that I'd be completely fascinated in. and, And I was. And it's a book called Season of the Witch. Um, how the occult saved rock and roll. <laughs> oh, that sounds and, really interesting. <laughs> and season, season of the Witch is the name of a Donovan song. Um, you know, released right at the height of you know the that- summer of love and the hippie movement and things like that. That's the like must be the season of the witch. Yeah, that's right. It's like remember every little stitch. Must be this. Yeah, that's exactly right. And so th- that particular, I, we can't sing too much of it, or we're gonna have to pay Donovan royalties. Right, right, right. <laughs> or we'll get we'll get yanked from from YouTube or whatever. Right. So, um, but the cool thing is, is that uh, it the book uh, it really goes deep into uh, the culture and the research in it. I, I think it's it's got a lot of research that I haven't read before. It even you know how we talked about Robert Johnson selling his soul to the devil at the crossroads. Yes. Um, that actually. The, the myth wasn't about Robert Johnson. I mean, it is now, but originally uh, it wasn't about Robert Johnson. It was about a different blues artist. And since Robert Johnson was such a huge figure in the Delta blues, people just started associating him uh, with that myth. And that was Ralph Macchio. It, well, yeah, <laughs> right. Ralph Macchio has, uh, he's got his own uh, sort of mythology surrounding him, the Karate Kid. But uh, it's, you know, we'll talk, we talk about that in the interview, and I liked talking about the history. And he goes from, I mean, he talks about the slaves and the spirituals and how they brought the elements of animism and African religion combined with uh, the Christianity, the Protestantism of the slave owners. And then in New Orleans, they, they combined it with the Catholicism of the French settlers and putting it all together. And this book really goes deep into that kind of mysticism and how that's shaped our relationship with the music. Very um, cool. And I'm excited to hear this now. <laughs> you got right. me pumped up. And uh, it was fun talking to him. I just found out I had a lot in common with him. So he, you know, he was a little older than we are. He grew up in the, in, you know, he, he came more of age in the uh, late seventies and early eighties. And he starts talking about how, um, 
you know, Black Sabbath and how he got interested in things like Dungeons and Dragons. And that's what wow. got him a little bit in, into the occult. Not not that Dungeons huh. and Dragons gets you into the occult. I mean, that, that <laughs> Oh, like, you just totally went right, there, dude. Yeah. <laughs> but how, you know, they used some of that occult uh, symbolism in the games and stuff and, and how musicians use that occult symbolism. Um, start, hmm. You know, really started introducing that to the mainstream. Um in the 19, late 1960s and early 70s. And so once you get into that, like uh, Peter Biebergall, who is the uh, author of Season of the Witch, uh, the man does his research and he really knows what he's talking about. So uh, it was a lot of fun to talk to him. And, you know, when the time was up and stuff, I, I still had a million questions for him. So I think we're going to have him back. Wow. But let's start with this one. And I think people are really going to enjoy it. And they're going to learn some stuff about music that they hadn't learned before. Okay, great. Well, thanks. Thanks for doing such a good job of uh, picking these people's brains, Mike. You're you're quite the interviewer, I have to say. I've enjoyed hearing you you uh, get the best out of these these guys. So, let's see what you did here. Awesome, awesome. Well, enough talk. Let's go. I'm here uh, with Peter Biebergall, uh, who authored an awesome book um, that is right up our alley here at CU on the other side. Uh, it's called Season of the Witch, How the Occult Saved Rock and Roll. And uh, it's about exactly the kind of things that we talk about in the show. And we've got Peter with us today, and uh, we're going we're gonna to ask him about it. So, Peter, how are you doing today on a, a fine Wednesday? Good, good, Mike. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. Now, uh, where are you located? I live in Massachusetts, and we just got hit pretty hard with s- two storms Okay, so you guys, you guys got it too. Um, in the Midwest, we ju- we just had the big uh, the big snowstorm. So, but you guys had the storm of the century, right? Isn't that well, what they're talking about? Well, they always about? say that, but <clears throat> I'm always amused when New Englanders act surprised every winter that it's going to snow. <laughs> right, it's no- <laughs> it's north. Yeah, so you know, I think if you if you've only lived here for five years, maybe you can you know be panicked every year, but. For those that have been here, at least ten to fifteen should have sort of figured out how to how to weather it, as right. the saying goes. Right now, you're not originally from Massachusetts, right? In your book, you talk about growing up in Florida. Well, I grew. I was born in Massachusetts, but then we moved to Florida and lived there for about five years during the mid '70s, and then moved back to Massachusetts. Okay, okay. So you did have a few years off. Yes. Yep. And those were sort of, I, I think, in many ways the most um, important in terms of forming my weird consciousness, as it were, were those years in Florida. That's where I discovered Dungeons & Dragons. It's um, where I became sort of obsessed with um, monster movies and with paranormal and occult phenomena. Um, It all sort of happened. And and the 70s was a weird time anyways. And I think Florida is already extra weird. So those things together for for a young kid who was enamored with these things was sort of a perfect storm. Absolutely. No, I love – there's always – uh, ex- excellent stories that come out of Florida. You know, it's it's always, you know, that's where we had, um, uh, what was the, the big meth, bath salts, you know, is was Florida, oh, yeah. you know, and it's, uh, yeah. there's always well, great I'll stories. I'll give you a, a quick story about my one of my first encounters with role-playing and that culture. Excellent. Was, I, so I bought my 
D&D game at a store called The Complete Strategist, which was on Sterling Avenue in Hollywood, Florida. And the guy who worked there was this very soft-spoken, very tall, long-haired, big, thick glasses with very long fingernails, very <laughs> sharply manicured. And I didn't understand at first why he would want his nails that long until I started playing war games and realized you really needed the fingernails to be able to pick up those little die-cut pieces. Um, oh, yeah. Those, those massive you know, war games like Panzer Blitz and, and all those. And so my parents used to drop me off there on Sundays, every Sunday, and I would hang out in the back room hoping somebody would come by and um, want to play D&D. And rarely anybody ever did. And one day this kid came by. I thought he was a little bit older than me. And so I was 12, you know, 11 or 12 years old. Okay. And this kid came and he said, well, I know somebody who plays. Why don't you come with me and we'll go and play with this guy? And so my parents, assuming I was just at the store for a couple of hours, I left in a stranger's car <laughs> and drove into some weird rundown part of Hollywood. Not that most of it wasn't rundown, but right. and we he knocked on some guy's apartment and the guy didn't answer. And then he drove me back to the store. And I always have this terrible fear, you know, of what could have happened. <laughs> right. What was gonna be in what that was guy's apartment? Be in that guy's apartment, you know? But there was something also about cult, that culture, and I think it speaks, you know, sort of to overall about these kinds of things that there is, especially in the early days when there weren't a lot of people um, who are interested in, in things like role playing games or the occult or, um, you know, horror movies and things that you always felt a kind of instant rapport with people um, who did. And so there was kind of maybe a naive trust. Absolutely. Uh, that, that we often had around engaging in these, you know, these communities. But you know what? When there wasn't anybody else to play with and I was the weird, you know, kid to play D&D in my school and this guy comes along and says that he knows somebody who wants to play. I mean, I, how could I not take him up on that? Absolutely. You know, it, that's, that's funny. You talk about the instant rapport that people have. I, you know, I think that uh, – Today, geek culture is these guys are just spoiled. Oh yeah, yep. you know it's like oh yeah, they, you know they got we got comic book shows on TV. The Avengers are cool. Yeah, you, you know like all right. this stuff. Like you just are completely spoiled. Um, I I I grew up near Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, so uh, where TSR was was based. Oh wow! So, so I remember. Um, you know, like making my parents like one time we were at Lake Geneva, and I'm like, can we can we drive by the office and just you know check it out, like to see where all of these these books that I had been reading come from, and we, we, you know, like where Gary Gygax, you know, where where he sat down and did his business, um, and I was disappointed. It just looked like an office in a strip mall. <laughs> right, exactly. It wasn't it wasn't a castle. No, I thought it was gonna be something epic, you know, like flags or a moat or a right. <laughs> You know, obviously, I realized that these were regular guys. I just thought um, it would be less looking like a just, you know, just like at the Chinese restaurant in the strip mall or something like that. So, uh, but I, I, I had to take a, a a little pilgrimage to see, you know, where all these books were written 
Um, and because it, it was weird at the time, you know, if we played D&D inside at recess or something, the teacher might be like, hey, the, you know, why, why don't you guys go out there and play kickball? It's like, well, because I'm sick of getting my ass kicked and I'd rather just right. play something I enjoy. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, you know, when I was writing Season of the Witch, I think it, it was very nostalgic for me, too. Um, even though, you know, I tried to maintain some objectivity, but the truth of the matter is these are. This is stuff that I love and stuff I grew up with, so it was it was definitely um, I think a book that I, in some ways, had wanted to write since I was, you know, eight. Sure, sure, and um, so if you're into you know horror movies, paranormal, the occult, I mean, and that was at the time too. I mean, there were shows like In Search of, like That's Incredible, would do stories about werewolves and things like that, and that's kind of um, you know, the occult and the paranormal had its own, you know, little subculture in the 1970s. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, so you, you got into that. What brought you into, you know, you, you talk in the book a little bit how you'd been listening to pop music or, you know, you talk about the Bay City Rollers or the Bee Gees or disco. You know, what got you into uh, the stuff, you know, Led Zeppelin and, and Black Sabbath and, and Floyd and things like that? Well, I grew up the youngest of four. My older siblings were 10, 7, and 5 years older than me. Mm. So in some ways, I felt like I lived in a house of adults. Okay. Um, you know, when I was 10, my brother's 17. That's a huge difference in age at that time in your life. Absolutely. My sister was 7 years older than I am, too. So I completely understand where you're coming from. And so his culture – and yeah, exactly. And so they're – their cultural markers were very different. And they also, you know, my brother engaged in the world in a much more mature way. So I remember, you know, catching him smoking outside the bedroom <laughs> window. And, you know, I was terrified. And I remember, you know, him putting on cologne, you know. Um, right. And I had no idea why you would want to put on cologne when, you know, when you're 16 years old, when I was nine. Um, so. But he loved music. All my, my family always – all my family did, but my brother <clears throat> in particular, excuse me, mm-hmm. loved rock and roll. And he used to play stuff for me and he would always figure out as much as his life growing up was about teasing me, it was also about trying to figure out ways to scare me, whether it was – you know, using his ventriloquist dummy, you know, hiding it in a closet with a cigarette dangling out of its mouth or something <laughs> like that, um, or playing, you know, Revolution 9 from the White Album, or even Alice Cooper songs, or showing me the inside uh, open uh, artwork um, on the sleeve of the David Bowie's Diamond Dog. Right. Um, and playing this, you know, We Are the Dead from that album and it was that kind of fear it it, it was the same reason why I love monster movies so mm-hmm. I was attracted I was both and I sort of say in the book kind of repelled and attracted at the same time but with with music with rock and roll in particular there was a sexual aspect of it um that I missed I guess in the vampire movies that I watched you know right right um there was much more even though I didn't understand what sex was it was def- it, there was something libidinous about this that 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 elevated it 
um, in a way that made it feel more real, maybe, or it, it activated feelings in me that were more than just fear. There was sort of an erotic element to it. Sure. And so that definitely, you know, like I say, raises the level of attraction for a young, for, you know, for somebody in pre-adolescent. I think a lot of people encounter rock and roll in that way, and that's part of its power, I think, is, is, it, is the sexual force of it, particularly yeah. in the 70s when, you know, with, um, with the Rolling Stone album cover where you could unzip the zipper right. on his <laughs> jeans. I mean, come on, you know, when I was eight years old, seven years old, my God, that was just mind-boggling. Um, but because I was always interested, like I said, in the arcane – that there was also all of that wrapped up in the music that was very easy to find. You didn't have to dig very deep no. um, to find that those symbols. And so it, it made sense that as somebody who was already interested in these things and then is starting to kind of come of age sexually, rock and roll was the perfect uh, place for those things to meet. You know, I, I think that's a, that's a really good point, and that's something in modern music – um, a lot like rock and roll doesn't have that place that it once did in the culture when we talk about sexual awakening. Right. You know, it really, uh, you know, the songs were a lot more explicit. Like, you, you know, even in the 90s and stuff, you wouldn't, um, you know, the sexuality of the Rolling Stones, uh, the really in, intense stuff, that was replaced by rap. And with graphic rap lyrics and with, uh, you know, dance songs that were, you know, more about what sex and rock and roll was, you know, you had bands like Weezer. That's you know? right. <laughs> you get, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, Patti Smith is, is, feels more um, authentically erotic to me than Beyonce does, mm-hmm. you know. And, and part of it is that rock was still sort of finding its um, early ways to agitate. And, and sex was obviously a big part of that, and so it was still verboten, you know. Right. Still, um, but I also think that there was um, something that was still dangerous about rock and roll. A- um, well, and, absolutely. We still had the World War II generation parents were still right. in there. And, you know, they, this was fearsome to them. We, we laugh now. I mean, parents – that grew up in the 80s and stuff have a joke about their Motley Crue albums with pentagrams on them. And so it's when you talk about Satanism, it almost seems like a joke. But to the World War II generation, uh, you know, seeing mystical symbols and everything like that, 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 was, that was different to them. That's right. And, and if you were a band back then and you've already felt like you were pushing up against the mainstream, that you were rebelling, what better way to amplify that than to seek out a spiritual identity that's also in opposition to mainstream values. Right. Right. Well, you know, and, and you really, what I like about the book is that it's, you know, it doesn't just go into um, the, the really more, more overt occultism of the 1970s when you get into heavy metal and everything. It starts with the hippies. It starts with the Beat Generation and the Beatles, and 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 the occultism in there is everything. You know, it's everything against. Um, it's everything against the the generation that came before it. And I I like that you start going deep. I mean, even naming it after the Donovan song. Um, kind of, it it gives a, a 
it gives a context to it that that this movement in the culture started much earlier than by the time it went mainstream. That's right. And by the time it went mainstream, the devil was sort of ascendant as the symbol of <laughs> right. rock's occult power. But that's a, you know, in the history of rock, that's a later phenomena. Um, I mean, obviously, rock and roll has been characterized as the devil's music by those outside, right? Um, you know, since Elvis. But but in terms of what the spiritual intentions or the creative intentions or even the marketing intentions of musicians and producers and labels um, was much more, I think, about a kind of mystical, non-demonic occult sensibility um, that, that I think really resonated for people, especially in the 1960s, because those images and those ideas – I think in many ways gave a language to understand mainly the LSD experience, which oh sure is already inscrutable. And so I don't know what it is. You know, I mean, certainly some people see Jesus on acid, but but there seems to be something particularly uh, relatable uh, f- between the psychedelic experience and the Eastern mystical experience. I think it has a lot to do with. Uh, um, Things like ego disillusion and feeling at one with things, maybe. And, you know, if you look at William James's uh, description of the mystical experience, these sort of these, these uh, definitions, which are, which are now actually being used um, in some ways by uh, psilocybin studies okay. that went on at Johns Hopkins, they went back to and looked at those again because they seem to be these categories of experience that transcended your religious identity. So whether you're Christian or Jewish or whatever, if you take psilocybin and you had a mystical experience, there seem to be these common these common elements to the experience. And and that's in our we talked about LSD in a previous episode and I think you're really getting at getting at something when you talk about ego dissolution in western culture. It's just not even in spirituality, it's just not something that is, you know, that is based in the uh, Judeo-Christian tradition. Like, it's, it's always based on the survival of the personality. That's right. But even Western esotericism is about will, for the most part. Mm-hmm. So, I think when you talk about, when you have these experiences where all of a sudden you're at one with the universe and everything, because, you know, you took this, the, the other, it's... It's meditation that can lead to that, you know, as well. And meditation is something that's right out of the Eastern tradition versus the Western. That's right. Um, so again, you know, it has to do with if you feel like what you're doing is um, is rebellious in your art or in your lifestyle, um, and and the church or the the moral majority is telling you that what you're doing is suspect or demonic right um and you say well then that that, then i'm not going to engage with that spiritual identity anymore you're going to turn to other things and i think it made sense again that in the 60s um eastern mysticism tended to be more the way in which people went now certainly there was a huge influx also of of western occultism tarot cards and um and magic as it were um particularly for many um, 
And there was maybe just a big mix of things too. I think the person who meditated also used tarot cards, and that's sort of part of that's part of you know a cult culture today. But it really started then when people were so hungry right. for something. The uh, new age. For, the, the new age. Yes, um, which is really I think comes out later because I think that it, the, the new age kind of loses its rebellious quality that was more uh, something that we saw. In the '60s, however, before you know it, those images and those ideas were being used, you know, in Pepsi commercials. Right. <laughs> and well, you know, we in the book it talks a lot about, um, you know, it gets in deep to the um, the symbolism, and and I love how, you know, you go into not just the Eastern mysticism, but you start with the very basis and you go into voodoo and you go into animism and uh, the African origins of, you know, slave music and, and how that went to blues and how that went to rock and roll. But, you know, there's in, in your book, uh, Peter, you say that Robert Johnson wasn't the one who went to the crossroads. And that's... The, I knew right then that's like okay. Now we have a guy who did some deep research. How did you How did you find that out? Because you can when you look on the internet or read any other book, Robert Johnson and the Crossroads, obviously besides the song, but selling his soul to the devil are almost synonymous. Yeah, I mean, I think if you if you read blues historians, you're going to find that more. And and it wasn't that hard to find, I guess, if you looked. Uh, but I really wanted to discover the roots of that story. Um, and there were a number of blues historians that said, actually, there was a fellow named Tommy Johnson, no relation, who had this kind of uh, haunting voice. And he, his brother, I think it was actually, was the one who sort of started this rumor uh, that he had, he received his musical chops, as it were, from some encounter with a, with a figure at the crossroads. Um, and it was later applied to Robert Johnson, um, but it could have been that he didn't even know in his lifetime <laughs> right. that that was part of his mythology. Um, but he had a song called Crossroad Blues, um, so maybe that was – maybe somebody just got the name Johnson and misunderstood or maybe somebody really was trying to reinvent the myth for some reason. Um, but what's interesting about the the – the idea at the crossroads is it's not even clear if you look at the history of that story that it's necessarily uh, for people who talked about an encounter with some supernatural figure at the crossroads that that would necessarily have been the devil because um, if you were somebody who was um, sort of swimming as it were in the mm -hmm. New Orleans uh, voodoo mythology and folks lore, you would encounter some of these uh, Haitian and African deities that were crossroad deities, trickster deities, sort of like Hermes. They are the intermediaries between the spirit world and human beings. And, and the crossroads is the symbol of where you might encounter one of these deities because they're messengers. Right, okay. Um, but th all these figures um, become... Uh, demonized, as it were, by, you know, and, and there's no single thread to follow how this happened. You know, it happens because black music is seen as demonic, because African culture is seen as 
demonic or barbaric um, because maybe um, we know that um, at one time the word um, by a fellow who was translating uh, the Bible uh, into Yoruban um, used uh, one of the deities as a stand-in for the devil in the Bible. Mm. And that had a big role to play in, in how this all gets um, you know, so it's all a, it's all a synthesis of of myth, of rumor, of racism, of um, religious oppression, and eventually, um, like happens, even uh, some would say, with the uh, pagan deities um, in Europe, um, horned or trickster or messenger uh, deities be- suddenly become uh, Satan. Or the devil, right? They all, they um, all, they all term whether it's Pan or Dionysus or whatever. They all right. just become the the Christian version of the devil. That's right. And in this case, um, in the South, um, it was uh, Legba, um, or you know. So you, you have these these things happen again. I and I use the word suddenly, and I shouldn't have. I mean, it's really a long process of uh, like a crucible of culture, you mm-hmm. know, that that makes this happen. But it's fascinating to have traced it and to see. Then, in its earliest places, popular music was seen as suspect. And if you are in particular, popular music was something that people would dance to. And if you're dancing, um, that's where the devil lies in wait because there's nothing more sexual, right, than dancing. Right, the temptation of the flesh. That's right. And, um, you know, and I, I just, I really enjoyed the fact that it's like, okay. Uh, maybe, you know, Robert Johnson, just it was conventional wisdom. And that's the kind of thing, the anecdotal evidence that uh, we've all looked at for, you know, ever, <laughs> it feels like, yep. uh, might be completely different than what blues historians had to say. That's so. right. But it's still a, a powerful myth. And, and the fact that it is a synthesis of very different stories doesn't then, it doesn't dilute its power. Now we understand the history of it, and we can see that maybe um, we were mistaken somewhere along the way. But that myth of Robert Johnson, one of the most influential guitarists, particularly for um, rock and early rock and roll musicians, mm-hmm. to take on the mantle right of having sold your soul to the devil, um, is is it's just perfect. Uh, for what happened to the culture of rock and roll. Now, um, in your book, I mean, you talk about, I mean, everybody from, you know, King Diamond to the Beatles to, you know, Led Zeppelin and um, Alistair Crowley, obviously, is a character that shows up again and again, uh, as as he does in any occult conversation about the 20th century. Um but who now? Which of these artists do you really think um, got into it more than others? Like, who is using it as marketing, and maybe like, oh man, this just this is just looks really cool on the backdrop. Versus, who do you, who do you think uh, actually was into it when you did your research? Yeah, I mean, it's a very interesting question. So there's a couple of ways to think about that. Um, I think there are those who maybe considered themselves practicing occultists. Um, maybe um, Jinx Dawson of the band Coven. Um, 
up to, you know, the British underground bands like Coil and Psychic TV. Um, but did Mick Jagger, who hung around with Kenneth Anger, was he a practicing occultist? Probably not. But certainly he hobnobbed with people who were into that stuff and liked the aura of, of Mephistophelian, you know, um, sensibility that it gave him. Right. Um, and, but then you have somebody like, uh, you know, Alice Cooper. Uh, I'm sorry. Um, I'm thinking Ozzy Osbourne. Well, Alice Cooper's another person to mention. But, right. But I was thinking I wanted to say Ozzy Osbourne, who was able to stage something quite, you know, whether you like his music or not. And I'm actually not a big fan, but um, more I, I prefer Sabbath. But who would stage these amazing shows where he would descend from a throne and walk down the stairs while flames are exploding behind him and um, he would have his upside down cross and you know did he practice spells no i doubt it however that construct itself is a kind of magic that's extremely powerful insofar as even maybe at that moment ozzy takes on this persona and the audience for that hour and a half, two hours with Encore that they're watching him are hypnotized by that and accept that there is something almost, um, you know, arcanely transcendent going on there. But once the show is over and Ozzy's back in his dressing room and people are driving, trying to get out of the parking lot, the the spell is is sort of over. But, 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 but I think real magic in the, and how I use that term is something that happened there between the the musician and the audience at the moment that the performance is taking place. And the fact that he uses occult imagery and symbols only prove the point of the power of those imagery of that imagery and those symbols to help, you know, elevate everybody's feelings about what's happening in the moment. Sure, they they transcend the moment, um, because of the the frenzy they get whipped in, and part of it is using those symbols and that imagery. And Ozzy is the prince of, the, you know. Now, you know, Ozzy. When I was growing up, I remember we just be like, "Oh man, Ozzy Osbourne, like that guy bites the heads off of chickens. He's crazy. Uh, he's obviously a drug addict, and I bet he worships the devil." And then, you know, you watch him in the Osbournes, and when you talk about Ozzy after the show uh, performing some kind of spell. I mean, I, I don't know that in the 1980s, Ozzy could have, you know, gotten dressed without help. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, but again, does it matter that he believed or didn't believe or that, you know, it, it's sort of irrelevant to um, my overall sort of point of the book, which is, is that there's something about these imagery, this imagery, these symbols, these ideas that married perfectly to the rebellious heart of rock and roll and i think for all intent purposes changed and shaped the music and even the pop music that we listen to today when we think about somebody like um i talked about this before and in the book about madonna's um super bowl appearance in mm-hmm. 2012 that's not very different from ozzy osbourne's show in terms of of a spectacle that is one that conjures up a sense of some, you know, um, occult mystery taking place. And I think she smartly understands the power of those images. 
um, and, and how they activate some part of us that responds sometimes um, excitedly, sometimes with paranoia, and sometimes with, you know, a shrug of the shoulders. Right. And, and you know, it's, it's interesting how these, you know, even 20 years ago, some of these images that would be more shocking. I mean, I remember Marilyn Manson on the, you know, MTV Music Awards, and he's got like an upside down cross or an upside down American flag or just something ridiculous that, you know, people were still shocked by at the time, like, oh, what's he, you know, what's he doing? And, and now mainstream artists are just, like you said, they can bring that part of the show into something like the Super Bowl, which over a billion people will be watching. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. And so, you know, people, it may not be as overt in a way where, you know, we, we, uh, you know, I mean, there's still conspiracy theories that will tell you that Madonna, Madonna is part of the Illuminati, but that's, you know, um, but that's different from right. the way in which people were responding to Motley Crue, which was, you know, sort of national outrage. Right. I mean, they outrage at how much makeup the guys use. <laughs> right. right. They should have they should have had an outrage um, at how they couldn't hit the notes in a live show, but that's a completely different. <laughs> exactly. Um. You know, some of the other stuff that I like in the book is when um, you talk about science fiction's uh, influence, Michael Moorcock on, on rock and roll, bands like Hawkwind, and um, even down to you talk about the invention of the synthesizer and Robert Moog and everything like that. And <clears throat> that's something that's just, that's not as explored as much because science fiction is its own set of imagery and it's its own set of rituals that you know might not have a basis in you know thousands of years of human tradition but certainly it's as you know for us that grew up with star wars and star trek it certainly is as burned into our minds as fantasy or the devil or anything like that. I mean, with Star Wars, it almost the jedis, come on, that's its own religion now. Exactly. But you know, I think that what happened in the 70s, particularly around the time of like, you know, with prog rock and, and, and Hawkwind and bands like that, is that the sort of failure of the um, hippie mysticism, um, which led, I think, to uh, overblown uh, devil incursion in the 70s for a little while, as much as, as fun as some of it was. Right. But then there's, again, this need for something more hopeful. Um, and I think we the New Age mysticism is a big part of that. And New Age mysticism um, really does involve, you know, um, kind of UFO as angels. Um, it involves a kind of sense of cosmic consciousness, which has its own sort of um, space age imagery attached to ideas like that. And so I think with bands um, who are looking more towards the future, um, maybe in a science fictional way, but almost also in a, in a kind of um, space age mysticism, that it's with a new kind of consciousness um, that we will, the human race will be saved. And, you know, you, you, can f you add sort of this, these sort of outlandish science fiction elements to it, 
and it becomes something really, I think, glorious if you're into that kind of thing. Right. Oh, yeah. Uh, right? You know, it's so much fun. Um, but I do think that there was something sort of intentional about uh, the future. And, you know, we think about New Age music, which is very much organized around um, around electronics, um, not traditional instruments, but instruments of the future. So here is a, a kind of spirituality um, that might even borrow from some ancient ideas in terms of, you know, the uh, hermeticism or things like that. Right. Um, but is using the sort of future materials, future methods to, to, ex- to um, express that. Um, and the synthesizer became a very important part of expressing a new age mysticism. Um, and, and Robert Moog himself talked about his instrument in these very strangely mystical terms about how he and the instrument were just a vessel whereby sort of the universe was speaking through him um, and, and, and using musicians also as just tools to, you know, to activate some part of this universal consciousness. Um, so, so even the inventor of this instrument understood it in these, in these extremely um, mystical terms. And, and that's really interesting because I think that, that kind of connects between, you know, uh, old, you know, old school mysticism and, and, uh, and the new age in that, you know, there are certain themes that are just arising from this art and this expression. And whether it's the imagery of, you know, the chariots of the gods or, yep. Uh, it's the you know, or it's the imagery of angels. Um, they're both kind of the same theme, and that's humans transcending themselves in some way. You know, and, and I was just wondering, you know, what do you think are some of those basic themes that the imagery finds almost every time? And it doesn't matter if it's 1935 with the old blues artists, or it's 2015. Uh, with uh, you know the modern the modern hip hop, yeah. Well, I think it gets to the heart of, I think what the occult is, if we want to use that word in a very broad sense. Um, and in the book, I I try to I call it the occult imagination as a way to broaden it even more. But I think it's about human beings feeling like they have some control over their relationship to the divine. Um, that there doesn't need to be an intermediary like a priest or a rabbi. Um, that you can have this direct experience. Maybe you need certain formulas to be able to do that. Um, maybe the tarot cards are a way to divine some knowledge of, of the divine's fate. Um, but whatever it is, it's about human beings, yes, transcending um, earthly sort of forms um, towards them having this immediate and direct and in some ways, under their own control, um, experience with the divine or with some supernatural force. Okay, and so um, that's the that the the humans' understanding, maybe the the purpose of the universe and everything like that, depending on whether we use science for it or whether we use you know quote unquote um, magic for it. Uh, I that's I love how the book gets into that and. Um, I love the way you put as the uh, occult imagination instead of instead of having it just be the occult, which just conjures up 
every kind of, you know, I, I know if I say the word occult to my mother, you know, she'd immediately be like, oh, that's just so weird. Right. Um, and, you know, have the, the little Catholic school girl in her would have like these images of, you know, some dark sexual uh, rituals and things. Um, you know, we talk about that, that imagery and we talk about um, that, that transcendence and we talked about concerts. You know, which concerts have you been to, heard about, or would have wished you were at, or festivals from the 60s to today that you think um, might have been the most exciting? That you're like, man, I was, you know, this, I was 11 years old in 1978 or whatever, or, you know, I wish I could have been at this particular Black Sabbath concert in England. Yeah, I mean, there's, I think, um, for me, mainly because they're one of my favorite bands, is uh, King Crimson. Um, at Hyde Park um, in 1969, um, opening for the Rolling Stones. And there's some footage online. I don't know if it's complete. I I think some of it might be dubbed from another live show, but you can see uh, there's a couple of moments when they start with 21st Century Schizoid Man. I don't know if you know that song, where where the, the hippies in the audience look absolutely shocked <laughs> like they can't figure out what's happening um but eventually they are sort of elevated by it i think that that's that would have been a show to see i think really any any of the very early uh you know the first three records of led zeppelin shows would have been something to have seen um just in, in terms again of these moments that absolutely uh changed um i think rock and roll's uh of history and of course um uh bowie's uh ziggy tour would have been something uh to have got to witness live well you you talk in the book how like he broke up the band on stage yes (laughs) yep he said okay everybody good night it's last 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 stop on the tour band hadn't did not know that that was what he was planning and uh, no, and it's so ridiculous that you're just you're thinking like I wish I would have been at that show, you know, like that. What kind of legend would that be? Like I was at the show when the spiders from Mars, you know, dissolved. That's right. I mean, for other people, it's when Bob Dylan plugged in. That's that's not my top top one. But. Right. <laughs> but no, that's a that's a great thing. And you talk about that show at Hyde Park, um, and you know, King Crimson and the Rolling Stones. Like they're both, you know, we both kind of relegate them to the classic rock era. Um, But, you know, when you think about how really different the Rolling Stones represented that rebelliousness of the 1960s of, you know, the Beatles versus Stones and um, that. And of a really blues-based rock and roll. Right. I was going to just like that that reimagining of the Delta blues that the Rolling Stones did. And then you have prog rock as King Crimson. You know, as is there any? Uh, I mean, they're they're bringing in um, the progressive movement, which you know would feature uh, album covers with spaceships on it. And you, you talk about Yes a lot in the book, and um, you know their album covers and and everything. And prog really took that new age and occult kind of imagery, sensibility, and, you know, brought it to the, the forefront 
in the seventies and everything. Think about Rush's album Twenty One Twelve. Oh yeah, with the with the uh, cover, yeah, with the uh, pentagram and the what's the, I, I forget. I always forget the name of that image. Is it the? St- um... Oh, I know. It's like a naked boy in front of the pentagram. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. But I think there's a name for that for the for the figure in the figure in the pentagram, and I always forget what that is. Oh. Yeah, I, I, I'm, uh, I'm trying to get at what <laughs> we talk, but anyways, certainly yes, th- these are some um, essential uh, moments, and maybe you know it got to point where it was a little excessive, um, and punk was a very important corrective uh, to all of that. Um, you know, it got a little too big for its britches, <laughs> right? Oh <laughs> as yeah, or you know. Um, so well, then it was changed. I mean, how do you be rebellious against people who are awesome at their instruments? You know, Chris right. Squire, or John Anderson. Um, you know, you have to have somebody who can't even play his instrument, that's like right. Sid Vicious. Yeah, or but but really, I think it's even it's even less quote you know egregious than that. I think it was about you know what? Let's go back to play like Elvis Presley. Let's just play three chords. Let's just play rock and roll again. Right, and get down to it. It's very basics. I mean, yep. and think about the Ramones, who basically the founders of the punk movement, and what I mean, their songs were just revved up. You know, nineteen fifties. That's right. Absolutely. Yeah, I was been listening to the Ramones with my son, and so sort of talking to him about, you know, at the time, even though at the time what it sounded like that they were doing was radical, even by rock and roll terms it wasn't radical um and now it sounds fairly tame right singing about going to the beach and meeting girls and things like yep. that it's like well might, might as well be a bill haley song <laughs> exactly um you know you, you brought in elvis and you know one thing i thought was interesting is that i didn't realize elvis was from the pentecostal tradition i guess it's the assembly church of god more specifically but yes it's a part of that larger tradition and we should explain that kind of tradition and why it's you know anybody that grew up in like a in the like I did in the Midwest like Catholic church which is very you know staid and you know half you know Latin or there's a, when the group sings it's not very earth shattering let's say no. um, so can you describe a little bit of some of that Pentecostal tradition so, to kind of give some context? Well, I think it's you know in some ways it was the white church's attempt to have gospel, um, to, you know, to have some actual, um, fervent, uh, sense of their, in their worship. There's a wonderful thing that I discovered and I, uh, from another, actually a one, a really important book on, um, African religion, on African American religion, um, which I don't have the title of the book right now, but I quote in the book where an early Pentecostal minister of a white Pentecostal church, um, is trying to get his congregation to show a little, you know, energy in their in their worship, mm-hmm. um, and he says to them, "We can't le- let the devil keep all this good rhythm." So, so even then, there was an idea that when you did worship like that, you were you were bumping up against the devil because, in some ways, what he was saying was that that's how black people worship. And we know that there are African traditions that, you know, were once barbaric and pagan, um, but they knew how to worship. So we have to borrow from that. Um, And that became the tradition, um, this very raucous, um, 
I think, you know, the Pentecostals where you also start to get the, you know, um, the more, um, uh, I just lost the word, um, kind of worship with um, an extension out of that is sort of like the faith healing and some of the very charismatic Christian churches. Right, or just the speaking in tongues, you know, people, you know, if you watch YouTube videos of people speaking in tongues, you're like, this, it, it, that feels occult. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That absolutely feels mystical because you're so taken by the Spirit that you are babbling. That's right. And in African religion, and you have to understand, a lot of this worship was borrowed from what, when the African slaves did, was considered demonic. Right. (laughs) But in the African tradition, um, when you were worshiping those deities, the spirits, you were possessed not by God but by the spirits, um, and you sort of you don their mask, as it were. You know, um, and we think back to the earliest forms of theater, which were the mystery rites of of, of gods like Dionysus, where mm. you put on the mask of the deity, you became the deity uh, for that moment. And speaking in tongues, I don't think, is very far removed from that idea, um, which is you take on some likeness of the spirit, um, and the spirit, quote, speaks through you, right? Right. Um, it's possession. <laughs> exactly. That's a good, way, a good way to put it, except by the Holy Spirit versus Pazuzu or whatever. Exactly. And so this is the church that Elvis was raised in for all intent purposes, and so there's this wonderful moment in um, in some interviews where you know he says he's accused by his church of of singing and dancing like some barbarian uh, some, and he says but I learned it in my church they taught me how to sing and dance like this mm. right. so he's he's mystified at the fact that people think that his you know that his music is the devil's work or it's uh that it's even controversial. That's right. Because it was certainly considered too black. Right. And and he'd grown up in the tradition where that was trying to be that. That was trying to make That's that right. religious <laughs> ecstasy through dancing. That's right. And gospel and yep. So uh yeah, so that's just that's just interesting that there is this culture in the south um that you know a lot of us are unfamiliar with that ha- I mean that has mysticism built in. Um, and that has re- that that goes right into the music Elvis that has formed uh, a good portion of our you know artist yeah. artistic life over there. And decade. Little Richard also, who was part of that church growing up. Yeah, and, and little you know Little Richard is such a fascinating character too because you know he's so back and forth. He's in love with rock and roll, but he also has that strong religious aspect to him in his in his private life and the struggle against his own sexuality. That's right. Yep. Um, and so that you know, just the the, the things that formed um, kind of our cultural context uh, from the nineteen fifties and sixties, um, that that they're based in such you know speaking in tongues. Just we'll we'll link to it on YouTube, and they'll say like this is this is part of the things that if you if you guys think that Alistair Crowley is weird, check this out. Right, but then other Christian churches would see that as doing the work of the devil. The Lutherans thought the Pentecostals were out of their minds. <laughs> and right, and um, 
So that's that's part of the fun of our own cultural wars. I mean, that continue obviously to this day when the Hobby Lobby, um, in in the culture wars we have. And that's right. Speaking of this day, though, the new millennium. I mean, we're talking, and all these seeds are sown, you know, in the early part of the, you know, in the middle of the twentieth century. But in the twenty first century, who do you see? And you talk a little bit about this in the book, but. Who do you see as like carrying the flame for occult imagery and whether it's rock and roll or whether it's hip hop um, for occult imagery in the 21st century? Well, I think there's a wonderful movement of underground um, and, and metal acts that are sort of reigniting some of that stuff, particularly from the 70s. There's, some, um, there's a wonderful band named Blood Ceremony, um, Electric Wizard, of course. Um, then there's uh, bands that are trucking with a little bit more occult mystical side of things like ohm um i think are important band emil amos excuse me is a musician who's involved in a number of bands like grails and ohm um uh, sleep of course is one of those sludgy doom metal bands that um you know are doing this kind of thing um but i also think there's just a number of really interesting um you know, experimental musicians um, that continue to embrace some of these ideas, um, whether only creatively or musically, and not necessarily. You know, again, whether they they practice in their own life, I don't. It's irrelevant in some ways. You know, right? Um, there's a band Swans, of course, um, is an important part of that. You know, modern story. Um, one of my favorite bands right now, who your listeners might not know of, is a, a Finnish band named Hex Vessel. Hex Vessel. Okay, I, we'll have to I, find I them and link to them. I highly, highly recommend. They're absolutely beautiful. If you want to really feel like a sort of authentic occult um, goings on, there's something very wonderfully uh, spooky um, and moving about uh, their music. Um, I mean, there's almost too many bands uh, to mention right now. Of course, there's all the people uh, working with the band Sun. Uh, you know, the uh, Stephen O'Malley's outfit that does the uh, the great uh, drone uh, metal. Um, right, that, and they play in like robes and everything like exactly. that. Exactly, you know, and you talk to, I've, you know, I've interviewed him, and, and again, for him, it's, it's less about belief and more about mystique and the power of that and, and how that becomes uh, part of the relationship between the performer and the audience. And um, yeah, it's the most mystique, though, is probably, I mean, you talk about them in the book, and they've come through Madison a lot, is Ghost BC? Yes. Like, they, yeah. they look like, you know, that's, that's a 2015 version of Alice Cooper. You know, it's like Alice Cooper come, came back. That's right. However, they can't quite resonate in the same way because it just looks like exactly what you said. <laughs> it's just the 21st century version of Alice Cooper. So they're always going to be limited by that. Um, I went to see them here in Boston and it was a terrific show, but there wasn't really a sense of anything actually sinister <laughs> going sure. on. You know, it's in fact kind of poppy metal. Um, right. Oh, yeah. It's very popular. It's very radio friendly, as it were. So, um, you know, but certainly they figured out how to do the spectacle. 
Right, and their uh, and and their music's great, and, and they're a lot of fun, and they put that. And I think you hit the nail on the head where you said the danger aspect of it, that you know Alice Cooper, um, you know my dad thought that he defecated on the stage and ate it. You know, yes. he, he heard something. He's like, you know what, Alice Cooper? And it must be true, right? What Alice Cooper did, and I'm, and my, you know, my dad's in his late seventies, so he's part of just the, after the World War II generation, you know. And I'm just like, what? A, what? I, I've got a video right here, and he doesn't do anything of the sort, and he seems like a normal guy and fairly conservative, actually. So all these things that when you talk about in the, you know, early seventies, that people, the rumors that went around, um, are just ridiculous. And, but what was kind of dangerous is you talk, you know, Ghost BC is a Scandinavian band. Yes. And it, it seems like the black metal, and, and I don't mean African-American or the color of skin, I mean directly like a, the genre of black metal kind of maybe took the imagery a little bit too far in the late 90s and the early 2000s. Yeah, and, and I've been criticized actually for not really taking that up in the book much, mainly because I felt sort of um, shy in the face of another book called Lords of Chaos, um, oh, okay. which is really the book to read. Um, although some say maybe it could have been a little bit more objective, but 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 that's definitely uh, the book to read. Um, there's also a book called Louder Than Hell, which is the oral history of of um, heavy metal that goes into a lot of that. But but in any event, yes, certainly. Although you know, if you look at the sort of Satanism of these black metal bands, again, it's it's less about. It seems almost less about the actual Antichrist as it does about some kind of Ayn Randian, you know, um, right. uber, uber libertarianism. Like Ant- you know? Anton LaVeyan. Exactly, Satan. exactly. So it's sort of a strange secular Satanism um, that uses, again, these ideas and these Im- images um, to sort of shock and to uh, create a sort of sensibility around um, – you know the the forces that they feel they have arrayed, but again, I don't know if I would necessarily always call it a cult in the way that I would say um, a band like Coil um, is a cult, or even the way Sun O, a Sun rather, uses uh, those those images. Right. Well, I mean, and and the stuff in Scandinavia got violent, like they burned churches, and some of these guys killed each other. That's right, and it evolved so quickly. A lot of it into racism and nationalism, um, and again, there's always been a there's always been a relationship between certain occult beliefs and and fascism um, and Nazism. So you know, we could have a whole other um, right story just on that. Um, well, you talk about but, da- David Bowie's relationship to fascism a little bit. Yeah, and you might I, just explain that for me real quick. Because a lot of people be like, David Bowie, the Thin White Duke, is a fascist. Yeah, I mean, I again, I think, and and this is very important in thinking about David Bowie. I think David Bowie is really he's the star of 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 my book for me, okay. um, because he really was the true alchemist in that he understood how to use um, his self as a magical instrument ultimately transforming himself into all these different characters um, in, in really, I think, like a true alchemical fashion, you know, really becoming and inhabiting those figures. 
um, and all along the way using and reading and thinking about the occult and magic. Um, but, you know, Nazism um, as a idea, not as a political idea, but as a social sense of um, power and control and the ability for a single person to have that much um, influence over an audience or over the masses in the way that Hitler did, I think was very intriguing for Bowie because I think he saw rock and roll having a very similar power. Sure, the the draw and the attraction and the and the hero worship. That's right, and there's a kind of propaganda um, with the staging um, that can go along with that. Was David Bowie a Nazi sympathizer? No, you know, <laughs> right. But but he certainly, at one point in his life, I think a very short period of time, um, saw something romantic about the sort of myth of the Nazi occult, you know, um, investigations. And again, this sort of power of, 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 of crowd control. And, uh, no, that, so that's just an interesting thing. Cause you talk about David Bowie's relationship with fascism and, and indeed, um, you know, Nazism and fascism and the idea of, we, we talked about elevation of how people feel that in groups, whether it's a Black Sabbath concert or a billion people watching Madonna and her Kabbalah-esque halftime show at the uh, Super Bowl, it's all the idea of as humans together through this art, through this imagery, transcending themselves. Mm-hmm. And uh, that just seems to be the the theme and how all of these different artists uh, from you know the 1930s till today have used this like weird imagery that's the the stuff of horror movies or the the stuff of um you know what what churches get together and they talk about uh how dungeons and dragons and everything can <laughs> exactly. poison your mind yep so uh this is this is fantastic peter we really appreciate you taking the time with us where can people find more information about your book and about your writings and just in general about you I mean, you can find me on Twitter. Um, I try to keep updated things there. I have a blog, which I don't uh, haven't been updating as much as I used to. But if you just my full name, Peter Biebergall, um is my Twitter name, and you can find me there. And I often post uh, things that are going on, either new writings or uh, information about the book. Um, you can also buy the book, hopefully locally, um, or it certainly can be ordered. And get it at any of the online uh, places, and you certainly could probably get it in your library. And uh, yeah, we'll we'll link to all of that in the, in the show notes and everything. And um, you know, I'll have to have you back sometime because I Love feel like to. we just started scratching the surface of like an overview of yes. occultism. And I, I recommend to everybody if you if this interested you at all, dive into the book because it's a launching point and it gets really deep into a lot of these things and you're going to learn stuff about artists that you love that you never have learned before so you really enjoy it so thank you very much for your time Peter um, and we really appreciate it it was great thanks for having me really enjoyed it well that was just fascinating Mike thank you <laughs> great job great job you guys really covered some uh, interesting things and things that I had no idea about 
Well, that, that, that's the idea. You know, just a little bit of education with your Satan. Yeah, well, I mean, I feel like as as a rock musician, that that knowing those things about um, other rock musicians and some of their, I don't know, motivations, inspirations, etc., it's uh, it's just some some very fascinating insight. Right on. Well, I think we should get to the Sunspot song of the week, and this is our own little track uh, where we take some occult symbolism and bring it into a song. This one's called Devil Music. <laughs> for listening to today's episode. You can find us online at othersidepodcast.com. Until next time, see you on the other side.